0: Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the great name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we come by the power of your Spirit. And God, we open up the book now. We open up this text, and we ask that you would speak to us from it. It is your word. And uh, we know that you, by your spirit, make your word come alive in our minds and in our hearts. So we pray that you would do that now. Uh, Lord Jesus, direct us by your word. And uh, Lord, protect us from the evil one, that he might not snatch your word from us, uh, but instead, let your word be embedded into our hearts. So come now, Holy Spirit, and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, Good to see you all today, and uh, we are going to continue our worship now by sitting under the preaching of God's Word and letting God teach us. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 18, so if you're grabbing one of those Bibles around the room, you could do that. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 18 in the Bibles around the room. I, I can't remember the page number, but 823 in the Bibles around the room. Also, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please go ahead and take that Bible home with you. That could be your Bible. That would be a gift from the people here at this church. And um, with that, uh, we're going to dig into this text in just a minute. But first, I want to do a little bit of setup because we're starting a new series today. So if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. But we're going to now do a series in the Gospel of Matthew from chapters 18 to 23 uh, that focuses in on really Jesus' teachings about what he wants his church to be. But what we're going to see is that every week his teaching is very controversial. So, that we've entitled this series, The Controversial Christ. His teaching is controversial in his day. His teaching is still controversial in our day. And you're definitely going to see as we lean into this text how it's not only controversial to our society, but it should be, if you're hearing what Jesus is saying, it should be controversial to yourself. Because what Jesus is saying really does confront all of us, including me. I know as I looked into this this week, I wrestled with it a lot. Um, But today... um, We're looking at the concept of greatness. What does it mean to be a great person? What does it mean to live for something great, to be great in the eyes of God? Now, there's all kinds of thinking about what it means to be great. And of course, there is a different kind of thinking about what it means to be great in the eyes of this world, right? Uh, There are, we tend to think of the people that are the most wealthy, the most famous, the most powerful uh, the people that do the biggest things, those are the great people. And sometimes, uh, or even according to Jesus' standard, they would be great. But a lot of the people that we would look at in our society and say, these are great people, Jesus would say, no, that is not a great person. And then a lot of the people that we would never even recognize, never even know what they're doing, or never even know what they're up to behind the scenes, or, or just, just not notice them because it doesn't seem that important, according to Jesus, some of those people that we never know, will never know, are great. So some of the people our society thinks are great are not, and some of the people that our society thinks are nothing are actually great, according to Jesus' teaching here. Um, so what makes a human great? What is it, and what is it not? That's gonna, what we're going to be looking at. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm officially uh, getting old, not just because I turned 45 a couple of weeks ago, and I figure that's like at least halfway through, right? Uh, you know, maybe I'll have a better run than that, but you know, like 90 would be a good run. So I'm about halfway through, and I feel, and I feel it in so many ways. Like, I don't know about you guys, like I wake up in the middle of the night, and i are and my arm just hurts. The, when I went to bed, my arm was fine. I wake up and now my arm hurts. Anybody have this happen before? Young people are looking at me like I'm crazy. I, it happens. Just weird stuff starts to happen to you when you get older. Another weird thing that started to happen to me since I've been older is I watch documentaries before I go to bed okay? Uh, That's like a total old person thing to do, right? But I've been enjoying these documentaries and I'm learning a lot about lots of people and a lot of these documentaries are about the greatest people in the history of our world. And uh, one that I'm watching actually right now uh, in the process of is about a guy named William Randolph Hearst. Because so this guy, he lived uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was a very powerful man, one of the most wealthy men, In the world, Uh, he actually, if you're from California, you probably know of Hearst Castle over on the coast. You can go visit it to this day and take a tour through it. It's this massive castle that he built as like his 16th home. And it overlooks the ocean. And him and his wife picked this piece of property. And they poured unbelievable amounts of money into it. And actually, you can go see it. And I guess I've been told it actually takes a few days. You have to spend a few days there to actually see the whole thing. Uh, But anyway, uh, that's not the greatest thing that he did. From a human standpoint, he did a lot of other great things. He's kind of the father of modern journalism. Now I don't mean that in a good way. Before that, journalism was pretty much straightforward reporting. But this guy was a businessman and he wanted to sell papers. And so he started adding uh, crazy headlines that would grab people's attention pictures, and he started incorporating gossip and a lot of editorial sort of stuff in his reporting, and they started to move papers much quicker. The only problem was he wasn't afraid to lie or shade the truth, just a little bit to sell more papers, and that tradition continues to this day, right? Like, not just with papers, but with cable news and all these other things we have going on. It's not really reporting about the truth, but a lot of times it's just somebody's angle or how can we get, the, get more advertisers or make more money, well, that was his thing. So he had extreme wealth, and because of that extreme wealth and the, the, the media stuff, he had extreme power in the United States. In fact, people would say he was more powerful than the president uh, for year after year after year after year. And, um, you know, he was a horrible person. (laughs) Like, he was a great man and did all these things, but he He did not love his wife, he was a womanizer, had many other women, and his wife had to just kind of live with that. His kids knew that he was doing that as well. He basically neglected his kids his entire life, flying around the world doing these great things. He ran over people, he crushed them into the ground, and yet Anybody would say, look at all these things he left behind. Not just the castle, but all of the other houses and different things. I guess there's a house that he built over in Santa Monica you can go see right now. He's done all of these great things and started off. But the reality is he was, according to Jesus' teachings, as we're going to see here, not a good person. Not a great person. Although from the eyes of this world, he's memorialized all over the place. And I think that we could do that, not just with him, but so many people throughout the history of the world that are famous or infamous. And we could say, that's a great person in the, in the history of the world. And, and what we're going to see here from Jesus' perspective is some of these people that we think are great are not. So here's my main point today. Humility is greater than ability. And that is in Jesus' kingdom. Let's look at verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So these disciples, this isn't the only time this happened. You know, they're walking around with Jesus. They can tell that Jesus is the Messiah. They can tell that Jesus is special. He's God's son. He's, something is going to happen here. Of course, in their mind, they're thinking, not thinking he's going to go to a cross and die like a criminal and rise again, they think, okay, any minute now he's going to organize this whole thing. We're going to have an army and we're going to take everything over and we're going to rule. Jesus is going to be the king and then we, because we're the disciples, we're obviously going to have important positions in his administration. And so the question is, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be your vice president? Who's going to be your secretary of state? And they're, they're saying, it's us, right? But who gets the top spot? so they 're all having an argument with each other about how great they are. I thought that 's ridiculous. These are the disciples, and then I thought about, well, "Wait a minute, every time I stand around with a group of men that 's pretty much what happens, right? Everybody just sits around and tells stories to show how great they are, or they tell negative stories to uh, talk about somebody else to feel better, but that 's really what humans do. We, we want to be admired by others. We want others to think of us highly, and so we don 't even mind bragging or even twisting the truth just a little bit to make people think that we're something special or something great. And the questions that we ask reveal our hearts. And the question that they're asking is, who's the greatest? Now, they're not seeking out information. That What they're saying is, Jesus, I want you to tell all these guys, in front of all these guys, tell them how great I am. And we don't know which disciples it were. We don't know if it was one of the 12 or other disciples. We just know it just says the disciples. So why do we want to be great as humans? Uh, Why do we want to be? I mean, if you think about what greatness is, it's being noticed, right? It's being respected, honored, treasured. It's having prestige, and everybody looks up to you. Why do we want that? Why do we want to be noticed? Now, first of all, is there anything wrong with wanting to be noticed? No. So, in fact, that's one of the great ministries of the church is we notice each other. When you come here, you're known and noticed. You're not just ignored. That's not bad. It's not bad to want to be respected or honored or treasured. It's not bad to even want to have prestige. But why do you want those things? Do you want those things... For the glory of God and the good of others, or do you want those things because you're actually insecure? You're insecure about who you are, and you're insecure about your contribution to this world, and you and you feel like you're not great, and so you're pushing forward stories and images that will make people think that you are. And Jesus can see through all of it. He can see through it with the disciples. He can see through it with us as we are here in church on Sunday morning. What does make a person great to this world then? Well, it would be accomplishments, right? Money, power, influence, maybe having a great legacy. Maybe it's fame or some kind of social capital that you have or social media, right? For a lot of, uh, especially teenagers, Uh, attaching to someone considered great often happens. What often happens is people will recognize, okay, I'm not going to be great. So what I will do is I will attach my personality and I will attach myself to somebody who I perceive to be great. You see, a lot of times teenagers will do this, especially like preteens. They'll find some kind of star or, or, you know, some musician and they'll say, that's my person. It's this kind of attachment to somebody who they perceive to be great in order as a way to lift themselves up. But kids, it's not just kids. Adults do it too. We look at somebody in society and we say, I'm with that person and we think that that is what makes us great. Now, there is a version of that that does make us great, but it's not the people that we're usually pointing to. Unless you're saying, I'm with that person, and you're pointing at Jesus, and you're attaching yourself to him to make yourself great, that's, that's a good thing. That's actually what belief is. But if you're attaching yourself to a pastor or a politician or some famous person as a way of seeing yourself as great that ultimately is going to fail you it's not only going to fail you it's going to distort you Um, and it even happens inside of the church i've worked now this will be the fourth church that i've worked at and in working at churches I, what I found is I, I would assume, as a pastor, that people, when they come to work for the church, they assume the authority of the Bible. That scripture is over us, and so they come to work at a church. And there's been times where I've had staff at different churches that I'm working with, and I'm showing them what the text says, and then they will, the staff member will say to me, but this is the real world. And I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're a church. We're not going to do things the way that they're doing out in the real world. I remember one situation where... Somebody on the staff stabbed somebody else in the back on the staff. And one elder told me, well, that's just the way of the world. It happens all the time in my business, and that person is just trying to get ahead. And I said, that will not happen in this church. That's not going to happen on this staff. That's not the way we're running this business here, because this is the church of Jesus. That might be well and good how businesses operate, but that's not how we're going to operate here. So even the elder of this church had this worldly way of thinking about leadership and servanthood and staff members and all of that that he was imposing into the church. And so it's not, some, I'm, not I'm saying that to say it's not just something out there, it's in here. And it's not just something out there in the sense of other, those bad Christians. I can tell you it's in here, in my heart. There is this longing to be seen as special or great or more And especially the fact that my job is to stand up on a stage and and say things to people and have people look at me, there is always the temptation to make it about myself. And so please, as I'm talking about this, don't hear me saying, I'm better than you. I I understand, you don't. I'm saying, I'm struggling with this deeply, and you probably are too. So false greatness is self-manufactured. Any kind of greatness that you can manufacture is false greatness. It is based upon image. It's amazing, especially, you can definitely see this with social media, but it's true whether you have social media or not, it's tr- it was true before social media, that people are trying to put out an image. They're trying to say, this is who I am, look at who I am, and they have this curated image that they put online of who they are, and they want you to flip through their Instagram and think, oh wow, their life is amazing. But they're not putting like on Instagram when they're fighting with their wife over the laundry, and they're both dressed in sweatpants, right? They're not putting that part on Instagram. The reason why is because they're curating an image of greatness, and we all do it to to some degree. Um, So uh, false greatness is self-manufactured, it's image-based, it's self-justifying. It usually involves a lust for some kind of power, even if it's small, some kind of position, some kind of pleasure. it's always looking for more. I want status. I want power. I want position. I want you to look at me as great. And a lot of times what happens is people finally realize, okay, I'm not going to ever be great in the eyes of this world. So they, they come up with their own version of greatness. Either they attach to somebody they do perceive to be great, as we already talked about, or they'll just say, I'm great because I'm right. I'm right about stuff. I see the world better than other people do. I'm good. I'm more informed. I'm better, and I'm smarter. And so they might not want to be, They've given up the idea they're going to be great in the eyes of the world in fame, but they still live as if they're great and better than other people, even in their conversations, the, way, the self-talk, the way that they think about themselves. So here's what I want to say. The kingdom of heaven rejects these things. The kingdom of heaven rejects measures, lists, social constructs, and human status. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is not a respecter of the same things that we respect. And what this does is it cuts through all of that so that we can go, okay, so then what is truly great? What does it mean to be a truly great person? And here's what you'll find. True greatness only happens after you understand two things. Who God is and who you are. Now, John Calvin, who was one of the greatest theologians in history, at the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion that he wrote, in the 1600s, one of the most important books in Christian history, first couple of sentences he says this, and I'm paraphrasing, that the true understanding and knowledge of Christianity comes in these two ways. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So if you can understand who God is and then understand in contrast to him who you are, you now have a chance to be great. So if you can understand that God is holy and good and perfect in all of his ways, just and true in all of his ways, that he hates evil, but that he is also a God of love and compassion and mercy and he is flawless in his grace. And then you contrast that with us. Just take the Ten Commandments. None of us can get through a day without breaking the Ten Commandments. Okay? Uh, You you tell a little little lie, you broke the Ten Commandments. A little bit of lust, you broke the commandment according to adultery, according to Jesus. You hate somebody, you've murdered them in your heart. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. So we are made in the image of God, and that's why every one of you has value and importance. But uh, what I know about you is also, you are also broken. Now, you might be hiding a lot of that brokenness, but I know something about everybody in this room, including me. You are made in the image of God, so you have value, but you're broken. And because you're broken, you grasp after greatness in the wrong ways, just like the disciples did. So true greatness happens when you understand how good and perfect God is, and then you understand, by contrast, how broken you are, what the gap is in between, and that in his greatness he does this. He doesn't look at you in your problem and in your brokenness and say, get better. You better fix this mess. The reason why he is because he knows that you actually can't. That would be cruel of him to say that. You could get it together because he knows that we can't. So what does he do? He comes down out of heaven and becomes a human. And he lives among us and he shows us what a perfect life is. And then he goes to the cross and he dies for this brokenness in our sin. And then he rises again, and he says, okay, now you understand what it is to be great. What it underst- to be great is to lay down your life. To be great is to be the servant. To be great is to, to even go to the point of death in service to God and humanity, and that's what Jesus did. He shows us what true greatness is. Now let's bring it back to you. When you walk into a room of people, there's all, you have a moment of tension. Because you might walk into that room and you see a few of your friends, and that would be good to go over and talk to them, right? Because I know them. That will make me feel comfortable. They're going to make me feel good. And that's not bad. God gives us friends. And you might look over here and you go, wow, those people aren't my friends, but those people are people of status. And, and, And those people are famous or whatever it is. If I go talk to them, they could somehow lift me up. So I'm not even interested in them for their sake. I'm interested in them and how they might lift me up. So I might go over to my friends because that will make me feel comfortable. I might go over to somebody that could lift me up and mobilize me and lift me up in that way. And so that would make me feel great about myself because I'm getting ahead. And then you look around the room and you realize, wait a minute, there's some other people here. There's some people that are sitting alone. There are people that feel awkward. There are people that I wouldn't usually identify with very much. So there's nothing wrong with going over to the famous person and there's nothing wrong with going over to your friends. But what if, what would Jesus do if he walked into that room? What would a great person do? He would look for the person who's alone. He would look for the person who is in need. And that's what we're going to see here that Jesus says is true greatness. True greatness is carried with humility. True greatness is humility. And humility is demonstrated not by looking at other humans and going, well, they're, they're humble. The Humility is looking at Jesus and going, that's humility. Okay? So in light of that, let's now look at verse 2. So Jesus says this, And in calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them. So we don't know if it was a little boy or a little girl. He brings this child over. So their, their question is, think about this for a second. Their question is, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, bring that kid over here. And, and we know that the kids loved Jesus. Every time Jesus showed up and there was kids hanging out, he, he'd play with them, he'd hang out with them, he would joke with them. So the kids all knew Jesus, he's one of those adults we like, okay? The other adults, they're all concerned with themselves and each other, but Jesus likes us. And so when Jesus calls this kid over, he comes over. And look at this. And this is what he, Jesus says to the disciples with this kid standing there. He says, and truly I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, unless you turn. Now, usually in the Bible, when we see the word turn, or it, it's translated repentance. But this isn't the same word. This, repentance is about a change of mind. What this word turn means is to literally I was like walking this way and now I'm turning. So he's saying, you need to make a sharp turn. The way in which you're walking is leading you away from greatness. You now may, need to make a sharp turn towards greatness. And here's the model, this child, maybe a four-year-old kid. Now, I don't know if you've had much experience with four-year-olds, but they just like walk into the, they're just like, hey, what's going on? What do you guys want to do? You want to play? They're, they're just there to play. You got any candy? They're just, they're, they don't have an agenda. They're not like, ooh, I need to make sure I talk with that person on Get an angle with that person over there. They're just like, "What are we gonna do, guys?" And that's what we see like this—that heart of humility. It's actually, Jesus isn't saying be childish. Of course, we know that children are not perfect. We know that they're not innocent. Uh, we know we know they're made in the image of God, but kind of just barely right because they can be. Especially bad children, you just know, like, man, sometimes they're channeling demons for real. But like. You know, but he, so he's not saying they're perfect and innocent. What he's saying is this, they're humble. They're not full of themselves. They don't need everybody's affirmation. They're just here to play. He said, you want to know what true greatness is? Look at this kid. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and you're going to have to turn and become like him. Now, what's interesting is they say, well, who's the greatest? And Jesus' answer is, I'm not even sure if you're getting in because you're too proud. Listen to the way he puts it. Unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the disciples. He's telling these guys, you're actually even too, forget about being the grace in the kingdom. You're too proud to come into the kingdom of heaven. Why? What is it? Well, see, I think our our understanding or our version of what a religious person is, a, a person dedicated to Jesus, would be like a very together person that is powerful and strong and maybe even a little bit of pride. But Jesus doesn't want that as the leaders of his church. He comes along and says, See this child? That's the model. That this child is living his life out of humility. In other words, Jesus is saying you need to take this human idea of greatness off the table completely. This way of thinking about greatness needs to go. You need to abandon the quest for status entirely, because the kingdom of heaven rejects measures and lists and social constructs and status. He's saying if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to reject the notion of being important, needed, admired by society. Own, and you're going to have to own up to some things. You're going to have to own up to your own broken patterns, your own weak spots. You're going to have to be willing to confess sin in general, like the, the, the power of sin, but also sins in particular, the things that you've done, which is a very humbling thing. So he, he's laying out for them this idea of what true greatness is. It's this child that's not taking themselves too serious. Now, let's contrast children and adults real quick. Now, Obviously, this isn't all adults. But in general, this is, if you get in groups of adults, this is what you will find. You will find a lot of skepticism about everything. But children, there's like this innocence, this faith. Adults can be skeptical. They can be petty. They can be judgmental. They live with Anxiety because of all of these things that they're thinking about, pressures that they have, they take themselves really seriously. Right, way too seriously. Uh, They can be adults can be biased and jaded. Adults can be negative. Adults can be people who gossip and slander, slander and and put each other into little tribes and say, "Well, these are my people and those are not my people." That's the work of adults. Not the kids that don't do that. We know that there are some kids that experience trauma or brokenness or abuse, and they, they don't act like kids, and they can be violent. But in general, these are things that come with adult cultures. Popularity, position, power. And think about how adults might relate to God. Entitled would be the first word that I have when I think of how adults relate to God. Entitled. Look, God, I'm going to church on Sunday. Sometimes I even give a little money to the church. I've served a few times, and you're letting this happen to me? You're letting me go? That's entitlement. That somehow God owes you something. It's the truth of the gospel is God doesn't owe us anything. That's what's so beautiful about his forgiveness. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel. He doesn't owe us anything. But adults can be entitled in their relationship to God. Adults can be um, uh, uninvolved, distant. Uh, oh, here's one that adults always do. When you talk to an adult about God, they basically think that God agrees with them. So whatever God thinks, whatever I think on this topic, that's pretty much what God thinks on this topic. So basically God has all the opinions that you have. The first step in humility is to understand that you're probably wrong about a lot of things that you are confident that you are right about. Like, for example, in humility, and you have conflict between two persons, if you both come saying, I'm completely right, and I am completely right, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you both come saying, look, it's 51% my fault, can we talk about the other 49%, you have a chance. But that's, that's not how we usually enter into those relationships. So if you have a God that always agrees with you, you don't have a God, you have a mirror. Uh, Adults spiritualize their own personality. So basically, my personality is like this. My way of thinking is like this. And so everybody else should think like that. And if they don't, they're stupid, right? Have you talked to some, you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you talked to enough adults that you've seen this? Where you're just like, okay, but yeah, but people are different. People have different perspectives. But I think you get the idea. In contrast, though, with children, think about how children are. In general, and now of course there could be an exception if there's abuse or trauma or something like that, but in general, children assume the best. They're inquisitive. They're curious. They just want to party, right? They just want to have fun. They want candy and games. There's imagination and compassion, right? There's vulnerability. Not because they're trying to be vulnerable, by the way, but because they just are. They just are. There's, there's no trying about it, and that's kind of probably what Jesus' point here is. Uh, children are present. Isn't that one of the best gifts? You ever see a kid just playing? They're just present there. They're not like, oh man, I got that thing, we got to pay those bills, and oh yeah, I got to get paid. They're not thinking through all the issues, and they're just playing. They're just present in that moment. You remember that as a kid? Just being in the moment, enjoying the moment. There's nothing else in the world going on. Well, that's actually, to be present in a moment is a profound act of humility. Because it's saying, my parents will take care of it. And for us, it would be saying, my father will take care of it. So I can be present in this moment. I don't have to control everything. I don't got to figure everything out. I don't got to worry about it all and get everything. No, I can just trust that God is with me and that I can live my life. And of course, I'm going to try and make good decisions, and I'm going to repent when I make the bad decisions. But at the end of the day, I have a good father who loves me. So that's what Jesus is saying. Be like the child in regard to their presence, in regard to the way they interact. Be like a child in the way that they show up. Here's the best thing, though, about uh, children. You see, adults with Christianity, let me just say, you've lost the magic not all of you all the time, but you remember when your walk with Christ was magical? Remember when you believed he could do anything? You remember when you used to pray and you felt like he was right there and he was listening to every word? You came to him with that faith as a child. You came to him with that humility. He has not changed. He's still there. For you, you enter back into that through going into that place of presence and humility, believing in the magic, believing again in the romance and the wonder of it all. And that's what a child does. When you tell a child the story of the gospel, like right now in Small Souls downstairs, those kids are hearing the story of the gospel. And they, when they hear it, they hear it with wonder and with joy and not skepticism. They're not judging God. They're not, they're just, they love the story and they're willing. And this is what God is saying of us. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to do that too. You're going to have to become like children and believe that your father is really there. He's really taking care of you. That the magic is real. That the wonder is real. So humility is greater than ability when we talk about uh, Jesus's kingdom. So here's another aspect. God may make you great in the eyes of the world if you pursue this path, but probably not. Okay? So let me give you an example. Desmond Tutu, he was the archbishop of South Africa. He just died, 80 years old. He spent his entire life as a a pastor, uh, pastoring churches in South Africa, preaching the gospel. Um, he, he, He was a great leader, great pastor, but he was just a servant. He was not seeking greatness, but over time, he became the archbishop of South Africa, and he's a black man. And if you know anything about the history of South Africa, there's apartheid and there's segregation and uh, just brutal racism. And so this black man who's this pastor begins to pastor the whole nation through segregation and apartheid, and he becomes the voice of reason as he speaks from the scriptures now, he spent his whole life doing pastoral ministry. Nobody knew who he was. He was behind the scenes. You know, he pursued the way of greatness, the way that Jesus is teaching here. But throughout, by the time he was in his 70s, God had lifted him up to this position where he was not only pastoring the church, but his whole nation through segregation and apartheid. And he died just a few weeks ago, and the praises for him were coming from every corner. Christians, non-Christians, atheists, people who hate Christianity, everybody agrees Desmond Tutu is a great man. But what I want you to see is he did not become great by, great by pursuing greatness. He became great by pursuing his calling. And his calling was to pastor and preach and teach and care for people in churches. And over time, that lifted him up to a place where he could intervene in the life of a nation. But most of the people who follow this calling will not have the fame of Desmond Tutu. Most of the people who follow this calling will never be known. In fact, the greatest people that you know in your life, you've probably already met them and you just didn't even realize they were great. Great people are humble people that are there on the sides and in between and serving and loving and giving and not looking for accolades and praise. And the people that are looking for accolades and praise and look me up and lift me up, and especially in the church, Uh, there is in the American Christianity, as you know, a cult of personality. That people go to churches because they like this guy, and I'm going to attach myself to this guy, and this guy is the great pastor, and I go to so-and-so's church, right? That is false greatness, to attach yourself to some famous person. Now, some of these famous pastors are actually godly men. I've met many of them. And I can also tell you that some of these famous pastors are not godly men, because I've met many of them. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is calling us to is to abandon that version of greatness, to, van- to abandon that way of thinking about greatness altogether. Now, look at verse five. He says, Whoever received one such child in my name receives me. So it's not just about you, it's also about who you receive. It is very easy to receive the famous, the people that can lift you up, the people that are already your friends, but do you receive the lowly, the broken, the people that, you know, you wouldn't normally gravitate towards? Maybe it's because of the poverty, or maybe because they're different than you, or maybe because they, uh, they seem like they might not like you, and so you're not willing to approach them. But in all of this, what Jesus is saying is if you receive the little one, it's not just talking about kids, but anybody who is little in the eyes of this world, especially it could be Christians, but it could be anybody who is little. If you receive with humility those who are little in the eye of this world, Jesus says this you receive me. So Jesus is found in the least and the lost and the lonely, those who are on the margins of society, those who are ignored, that's where we find Jesus. All the opposite, though, is also true, in Jesus, and this is where Jesus gets powerful and even judgmental and condemning. Look what he says here, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So he's saying those who harm the little one, the humble, it would be better for them that if they died before they did that thing be It would be better if they died a violent death. Have a mill you know what a millstone is? It's like this massive stone that weighs more than your body, and they tie it around your neck and they throw you in the sea. It would be a, a way in which the death penalty would be carried out. And Jesus is saying it would be better for you to die in that way than make a little one stumble. So this could be several things. One, this could be children. We all know that those who harm children deserve God's judgment, but also deserve judgment in this world, right? Um... So we would agree with Jesus there as well. But also, I think he's going further. We just talked about like celebrity pastors and and whatnot. When you see a celebrity pastor do some really stupid things, what happens? A lot of people in their churches leave and lose their faith. I think it could be referring to that as well, that people use their status and their power in a way that oppresses other people. But what he is saying is this— there are basically two approaches to the humble. You either receive the humble, the weak, the poor, the broken, or you reject them. And Jesus is saying, when you receive them, you receive me. When you reject them, you reject me. And that should take our breath away. Because if we're to look at our own lives, and if we're looked at our own churches, and if we're looked at American Christianity, and if we're to look at Christianity worldwide, I think we would have a hard time finding churches that were about the lonely, about the lost, about those in need, and about those who were broken. But that is what Jesus is calling to us, us to. You see, in other words, another way of looking at it as we do our public opening today as a church is, if we're going to become a great church, we will not become a great church by pursuing greatness. We won't become a great church by trying to become big and famous and have people know us in the city. We won't become a great church be- if we ever got numbers or size of any kind. What will make us a great church is how we interact with the most humble people in a city that values fame. That will be the test of who we really are and where we're really going and what we're all about. Not, I'm not against fame. I moved to Los Angeles cuz I want to reach people that are in the industry. But I also want to teach them that that's not what life is all about. And that will lead to emptiness and brokenness more in your life. And Jesus is teaching us here that if we want to be great, the pursuit is humility. Now here's the thing about humility. You either pursue it or God will send it. Okay. See, if you, if you belong to God, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you've accepted his forgiveness, you're now in his family, he loves you and he's not going to leave you in the same place. So you either pursue humility, pursue making yourself low, pursue making yourself the servant, or God will bring suffering into your life to make sure humility comes into your life. And here's what I would say. There is actually one passage that says, if you don't receive God's discipline you're not really a child of God. So here's what I would say for all of us. Let us pursue humility by the grace of God. None of us are going to be humble in the sense that Jesus is. But let us pursue humility. And it's something you have to turn to. Remember what Jesus said, turn. Humility is not going to happen automatically or naturally. It's only going to happen when you put yourself in the place of humility when you put yourself in the place of lowness, when you put yourself in the place of service, when you stop approaching things as it's all about me and you start approaching things as how can I be here for others, that is when and where you'll find greatness. And the reason I know that for sure is because that's exactly what God did. The reason why we're told in Philippians that Jesus has the name that is above every name So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The reason why is because He was the greatest, and He became the least. He not He's that was worshipped by angels in heaven, and He died alone, naked on a cross like a criminal. That's greatness, because when He died, He was dying for our pride are false versions of greatness. And here's the beautiful thing. If as I'm talking you feel uh, guilt or shame, that's, that's probably good at some level, but you don't have to stay there. The cross of Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, so you don't have to carry that guilt and carry that shame anymore. He knew that you couldn't be great in the way that he could, and so he was great for you. So he dies for your pride. He dies for the way in which you want to lift yourself up. And then he says, okay, now pursue that same thing I did for you. Pursue it for yourself and pursue it for other people. He came from heaven, became human, became vulnerable. Not just as a human, but as a baby. Put himself in the place where he needed Joseph and Mary to take care of himself, to take care of him. He, he lived and worked a job up until the time he was 30. He spent three years preaching about the kingdom of God. He lived a perfect life and obeyed God's word and thought, word, and deed. And when he did it, he did it on all our behalf. And even though he's the one that never broke God's law, never did anything evil, he chose to die. He put himself forward to die. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And he took that punishment upon himself. That is greatness. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, put yourself low and serve. Don't worry about what everybody else thinks of as greatness. Don't worry about the fame of it. Just put yourself low and serve. Because at the end of the day, if everybody else thinks you're great and God does not think so, what does it matter? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging word. I know I myself don't live up to it. I know nobody here does. We thank you that your grace fills in the gap, that with your humility, you make us humble. Your gentleness makes us great. So we lift our souls up to you, Lord. And we say to you, we want to pursue humility by your grace. Fill us with your spirit to do so, Lord. And We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're now going to take the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of Jesus' greatness. The bread represents his perfect life and body. The cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He became great to save us. He was great in the way of God, and that's what saves us. So because of that, we're going to take the elements in just a moment. And what we have on this table is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what God has done for us. It's also a picture in this way. It's a gift. The Lord's Supper or the gospel is something God gives to you. It's not something you earn. It's not something you take. It's only something you can receive with empty hands. So when you go to the table, go with empty hands. If there's anything you're carrying, give it to God before you get to the table. And come to that table with empty hands and let him fill your hands with his body and blood. So with that, let us rise as we will in the resurrection and go to the table of our Lord.